Good morning. Man, remain standing if you would. Grab your Bibles. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, that's where we're going to find our text today. Hey, I want to say to you, if you're our guest this morning, we are very, very glad to have you here. In the front of uh, of you, in the seat in front of you, rather, in the pocket, there's a, a card that looks like this. And um, we would like to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to give us a little information about yourself. We'd love to know about your visit, maybe uh, uh, how you found us. And, uh, and, but more importantly, we want to know if you have any needs, if you'd like to meet with uh, one of our pastors or elders, you can put that on here as well. And for all of you, if you have a prayer request, you can put that on here. We pray about these every single week diligently. And so we'd love to know how we can pray for you. All you do is fill that little card out. And then there's a black metal box right at the back of the worship center there. You can drop that in on your way out. Um, now, if you found Philippians chapter 2, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible... Um, we're going to actually be on page um, 570 in the Bibles that are in the chairs there. We always like to mention this. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. So feel free to take that with you as our gift if you need that. But if you're using one of those Bibles, it's going to be on page 570. And let's read what the scripture says, beginning in verse 5. It says this. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and this is a big therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father amen amen thus says god's word you may be seated as you know we're in a series on 10 of the doctrines that we have embraced as a church, the things that we believe are fundamental truths. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Jesus, the Son. And so what I'd like to ask you to do, I've, I've read these for you, and I'm going to ask you to be a little bit uh, involved this morning. So we're going to put our doctrinal statement on Jesus, the Son, on the screen right now. It may already be coming up there. And um, and I want you to read this out loud with me, okay? Because I really want this to kind of sink in. I want you to to hear what we're saying that we as a church believe together. So so read this with me. We believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the eternal Word made flesh, supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary that he is perfect in nature, teaching, and obedience, that he is fully God and is fully man, that he was always with God and is God, that through him all things came into being and were created, 
that he was before all things, and in him all things hold together by the word of his power, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that he is the only Savior for the sins of the world, having shed his blood and died a vicarious death on Calvary's cross, that by his death in our place, he revealed the divine love and upheld divine justice, removing our guilt and reconciling us to God, that having redeemed us from sin, the third day he rose bodily from the grave, victorious over death and the powers of darkness, and for a period of 40 days appeared to over 500 witnesses, performing many convincing proofs of his resurrection, that he ascended into heaven where, at God's right hand, he intercedes for his people and rules as Lord over all, awaiting his return, that he is the head of his body, the church, and should be adored, loved, served, and obeyed by all. Amen? Amen. Now, it's my task to tell you what all that means. So, so wish me luck, right? So we're continuing this series on the truths that were embraced by NRLC. And you'll recall that in this series, we've already talked about the authority of Scripture. And we talked about the mystery of the Trinity, this, this triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we took a week and focused specifically on the person of God the Father. So today, as you know from what you just read, we're going to turn our attention and focus on the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so when we look at Jesus, we, we have to recognize that Jesus is the central figure of all of Scripture. Jesus is the point. He is the message of Scripture. That Jesus is the one whom all of the Old Testament foretold. He's the one who has come and he has pleased the Father in every way. He is the one who is forever put forward by the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus the Son. There is no one, there is no one that in any way is comparable to him. Is that right? No one. History hasn't produced even one reasonable facsimile of someone that we can point to that says the kind of things that he said or did the kind of things that he did. No one has caused as much controversy and no one has generated as much devotion across the world. His birth was so significant that it literally split time in half. We regard time as what happened before his birth and what happened after his birth. But even more than that, his birth was so miraculous that the implications of it, if true, are astounding. Legendary interviewer Larry King, y'all remember him? He was once asked in all of history if he could interview one person who he would most like to interview. Listen to his answer. He said, I would like to ask Jesus Christ. He said, I'd like to interview Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Now listen, because the answer to that question would define history. How astute of a man was Larry King to figure that out? Because let me tell you something. The fact 
that he was virgin born, along with a myriad of other truths about him, has in fact defined history. History is in fact his story. Other famous non-believers, or should I say infamous non-believers, El Guapo, have been compelled to attest to the undeniable uniqueness of Jesus Christ over the years. Listen to what Napoleon Bonaparte said. He said, I know men, and I'll tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And listen to this. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That's what Napoleon said. H.G. Wells, the, the science fiction writer and historian, said this. He said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. Now get that straight. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. H.G. Wells. I want to present to you this morning four simple truths that all true Christians will embrace in order to hold a correct view of Jesus Christ. Like the mystery of the Trinity that we discussed a few weeks ago, these may actually quite frankly sound contradictory to our limited human understanding, understanding rather, but I hope that, that, that I'll be able to thoroughly prove each one of them for you from Scripture. So here's, here's the, the, the statements. First, Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. Second, Jesus Christ is fully and completely human. Thirdly, the divine and human natures of Jesus are distinct. And fourthly, the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in one person. To say that Jesus Christ is divine is to say, like we've said over and over in this series, that Jesus is 100% God. That ever, that, that, that is to say that everything that God is, Christ is. If God is omnipotent, if he's all-knowing, if he's ever-present, if he's eternal, if he's self-revealing, by necessity, Jesus must be all of those things. Else... He wouldn't be God. He has to be those things. And if he wasn't God, then we certainly wouldn't be able to call him divine as we are this morning. We we read earlier how the Apostle Paul told the Philippians that Jesus was in the form of God. and, And he says even that he had equality with God. He says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in his introduction to his book. He says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now watch this. He's the exact imprint of his nature. That means he's a copy. He's a, he's a, he's an exact representation. He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who does? Jesus does. Now, would you agree with me? That upholding the universe by the word of your power is the prerogative of God alone. And yet, 
it's accredited to Jesus that that's what he does in this passage. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, the night of his betrayal, he, he asks the Father to do something. He says this, he says, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's saying that Jesus was robed in glory and majesty in the presence of the Father, in the presence of the Spirit, in the presence of of whatever other created angelic beings were there. He had that before any of this was, long before that night in Bethlehem. He was God. As long as God the Father has been God, guess what? Jesus the Son has been God. Though critics and atheists and heretics will say often, you'll hear this all the time, that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God, a a quick look at the Gospels shows this to be completely unsustainable. That's not true at all, and I'm about to prove it. So, for example, when you hear an atheist or a critic say that, what they're saying is that Jesus never presented his birth certificate that said, I am God, signed Jesus. That's that's true. He never he never had that statement. But watch this, and you you decide. You be the jury today and decide if Jesus was knew and said that he was God. For example, Jesus this is significant. Jesus claimed the right, did not ask for permission, but claimed the right to restate God's law. He claimed that right. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the Sermon on the Mount, six times he reminded the people what God's law clearly taught. He would tell them, you have heard it said, and then refer to something that was written in the law. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. He would point that out, and everyone there, yes, we've heard that. We know that's in the Mosaic law. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, we also know that Moses said that a curse would be upon anyone who adds to that law. But guess what Jesus did next? He said, but I say to you, let me tell you something. The author of the book has the right to edit the book. He has the right. He said, but I say to you, he he would authoritatively broaden its implications. But I say to you, and surely expanding the reach of the law is something only God can do. Would you not agree? In John 13, he went a step further. He said, a new commandment I give to you. Now, if he's not God, he's in big trouble. But if he is God, he can issue all the commandments he wants. He also claimed that it was he who would sit as the judge at the last day. You're all familiar with the scripture. But I want you to, we're going to put it up on the screen. I want you to pay particular attention to the personal pronouns in this passage. Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many of you will say to who? To me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in and cast out demons in and do mighty works in? Then will I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's saying in this passage, he's saying, when all the books are balanced at the last day, the guy uh, receiving people in and casting people out, it's going to be me. 
I am judge. I am God. I'd say that's pretty clear evidence, wouldn't you? Want some more? Moreover, thank you. Appreciate that, Shannon. I can always count on you. You know that? Moreover, he forgave the sins of the people. And not only did he forgive the sins, he validated his right to do so with miraculous signs and miraculous healings. Even though the Jews who were present at that particular healing, they gasped in horror and they said, who can forgive sins but God only? And if Jesus had been Mark Sharp, he would have said, exactly, precisely the point. Who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus said, watch this. The Jews certainly had no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, who Jesus was claiming to be. In fact, if you look at John 5, 18, you'll see that they sought to kill him because he had claimed to be God's son. Now, they may not mean much to you, but it says here in the text... That by saying he was God's son, he was making himself equal with God. Now, let me ask you this. Who did Jesus claim to be? Who did he claim to be? He claimed to be God, didn't he? He claimed to... Is there any doubt that Jesus claimed to be God? I can go on if I, if you, if you'd like me to, but, but I'm telling you there's no doubt. You can establish it beyond degree. And then you have the writings of the apostles and the writings of the Old Testament pointing to him that, that emphasize this point that he was God. So amen, let's take another offering and go home. Hold on. We have to now consider a seemingly contradictory point. And that is the mystery of what in Christian doctrine we call the incarnation. The fact that God became human, that God took on human flesh. It is the great mystery of the New Testament. This fact that one who was fully God, equal to the Father, became a man like you and I. And this is a fact that is fully attested to throughout the scriptures. In fact, in our text that we read earlier, Paul said that he was born in the likeness of men and that he was found in human form. John likewise said that the word, who he always uses the word as a descriptor of Jesus, he says, the word became flesh. In fact, this fact is not easy at all to get our minds around God becoming man, man being God. How, how can we understand that? But as we saw with the Trinity, if you'll recall, we have to let the Bible and not the intellectual difficulties it often presents be the final word. Amen? Paul said it like this in Romans 3. He said, let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. So what exactly does the scripture say about Jesus' humanity? First, it says that Jesus Christ had, like you, a human birth. Now, in a few weeks, you guys are going to be pulling out your nativity scenes and dusting off the, the dust from them, setting them out. And most of you will have this lily white European plastic, plaster baby in there with his hands outstretched, gazing up toward heaven and a golden halo around his head. Let me tell you something. That was not at all the scene in Bethlehem over 2000 years ago. Not at all. 
Jesus had a birth that was loud and messy, just like yours was. He emerged from his mother's womb, just like you did. Now, who did Jesus claim to be? Come on now. I, I was hoping I was doing a better job than that. I hope you heard that whole first part of this. He claimed to be God, and yet he was born just like you were. He had a human genealogy. Galatians 4 puts it like this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was born just as you as I was, just as I mentioned. He was born a Jew. He was born under Jewish laws. He was born under Jewish traditions. And he had a Jewish family line. He was descended directly from King David. Secondly, he had a genuine human body. It wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't, it wasn't an illusion. He had a genuine human body. And, and all throughout the, 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 the New Testament scriptures and the Gospels primarily, it tells us things about that body of Jesus. It says that Jesus grew and matured. Now think about that. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, experienced puberty. Everyone's scared to laugh at that. Jesus experienced puberty. That's great news for the young people among us. Great news. The Bible says he can be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. He experienced puberty. He had pimples and he talked to his mother like that. His voice was changing. He experienced both Hunger, Matthew 4, uh, or 4, 2, and John 19, 28, he experienced thirst. He grew tired, John 4, 6. He was even capable, as you know, of death, and in fact, he did die. There was a genuine human body that he had. Third, he had a human mind. Not comfortable with this, but as a, in his human mind, in the agency of his humanity, he was capable of limitations of knowledge. Now think about this. You all have heard this. You've struggled with this. Mark 13, 32. But con- talking about the end times, he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, three little words, nor the son, but only the father. Luke also tells us, in Luke 2.52, that he grew in wisdom. Fourth, he experienced human temptation. Our key verse for that is Hebrews 4.15. It says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, what respect? In every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ's humanity, please don't miss this. Christ's humanity matters a whole lot to you and me. Of course, we honor him, we recognize him, we worship him like we did this morning as God, but his humanity matters to us a great deal because apart from his becoming a man, you and I could not be saved. Let it sink in. If he had just been God glorious throughout all eternity, enthroned, worshipped by angels, if he had stayed in that state and neglected his incarnation, you could not be saved. He had to become one of us to perfectly fulfill all of God's righteous laws for us. Why? Because not one single one of us did it. 
He had to be one of us in order to receive in our place the death penalty that we received that our sin and our rebellion had incurred. Because none of us could stand up under that. 2 Corinthians 8 9 puts it like this. Paul tells the Corinthian church, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake. That's one of the most beautiful phrases in the scripture. For your sake, he was, he became poor. Now imagine the deep implication of that verse. How could you measure the wealth of God? How could you measure it? What words do you have? Do you compare it to Donald Trump, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett? What do you do? How do you look at the wealth of God? And imagine how absolutely without need, without want, without lack that he is and the majesty of his presence and that he could command angels and and, and do anything by the creative word of his power. He could create anything. And the Bible says that, that dripping with that kind of wealth, for your sake, he became poor. That he loosened his grip. Paul says that he did not think that his equality with God was something to be grasped, but he loosed his grip on all of that. He emptied himself in this mystery we call the incarnation, and the God who had everything became poor. So poor he didn't have you know, a room to be born in. So poor he grew up under the, under the parentage of common laborers. So poor that no one even knew he was where he was. He's from a little podunk town in Galilee. He gave up all of that and became poor. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that, I love the so that, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Praise God. Perhaps you think, okay, I got a handle on his humanity. I've got a little bit of a handle on his deity, but here's what I want you to do. This is where it gets tricky. I want you to try to imagine them existing and operating simultaneously. Think about that. That's the mystery of Jesus Christ. Try to imagine them as simultaneously true. Because of the difficulty of harmonizing these dual truths, just like they did with the Trinity as we discussed, the early church had to endure this introduction of multiple heretical doctrines that on one side or the other got the essence of the person of Christ way wrong. These included things like uh, Ebonism uh, and Arianism, which denied in differing measures Christ's deity. And they also included things like Docetism and, and Apollinarianism, which denied in differing measures Christ's humanity. But none of them passed the biblical smell test. None of them did. So once again, the church convened a council, like we talked about with the Trinity. This time it was in 451 AD in Chalcedon in modern day Turkey. And they did that to resolve these disputes. Who is Jesus? And if I may say it like this, what is Jesus? Their conclusion, after a lot of talking this out, was that the mystery of Jesus Christ is that he is simultaneously 100% God and 100% man. 
He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's not some other mixture. To sum it up, the, the divine and human natures of Christ are at all times complete and distinct. You can take a breather for a minute. Anybody need a cup of coffee while we're kind of settling on that one, on that thought? Simultaneously complete. Simultaneously distinct. This means that, and listen to carefully to this statement. This means that one nature of Christ is sometimes seen doing things in which the other nature does not share. Let me explain what that means. For example, we're told multiple times in the New Testament that Christ was an equal participant with the Father in the creation of the universe. But what we don't see in the Gospels is the man Jesus Christ walking around because he's bored creating new universes. He doesn't do that in the New Testament. With, by, by the word of his power, like it said earlier, that, that he doesn't do that even though he could. But conversely, one of the fundamental truths about God that, that is absolutely necessary is that God does not, God cannot die. But what happened to Jesus when he was 33 years old? He died. So when you see one nature doing uh, uh, one thing and uh, that doesn't seem like God would do it, or one nature doing one thing that doesn't seem like man would do it, what's the explanation of this apparent conundrum? What, the, what you're seeing there, these things are seen as Christ acting distinctly within the two natures in which he exists. In both scenarios I gave you, in creation and in death, both of them are true. And we mustn't forget that this is the, the, this is the take home point. We mustn't forget that when Christ became a man, he wasn't ever less than fully God. Please hear me on this because some of us have, have heard either bad translations or bad preaching and we've got this idea that the, the, the carpenter in Nazareth turned off the God switch for a little while. But that man, that man who left footprints in the sand, now I'm not going to quote the little poem there, but that man was God. He was fully God at all times. He was worshipped as God. Angels ministered to him as God. He was God. But, I said, okay, I got that, Mark. Move on. But you're not, we're not done yet. But I want you to remember this. Since he has ascended back to his Father in heaven, he is still even now, the perfect man. Even now, he is the perfect man. Why? Because he chose from his lofty throne to come here and be the representative for you for the rest of all time. He is the last Adam. What Adam screwed up, he fixed up. And he is the last Adam. And he stands in his humanity as an everlasting propitiation of the wrath of God standing there for you. That word propitiation means to take away the wrath, the justified wrath of God. And he stands there before the throne, on the right side of the throne, all the time showing off those wounds and saying saying the the penalty has been paid the requirement has been met i am here as a man for all of them who couldn't carry this debt praise god 
Therefore, Christ's incarnation, when we talk about his incarnation, it's a matter of him gaining human attributes, but never of giving up divine attributes. He gave up the glory of the divine life, that wealth we talked about, but not the possession of divine powers. This is what Paul meant in our text when he says that he emptied himself by taking the form of the servant. He didn't become less than God. He just emptied himself of that glory. The Amplified Bible, I like the way it says it. It says that he did this without renouncing or diminishing his deity, but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity. This also means that anything, listen, anything that either nature does as God or as man, the person of Christ does. He, God incarnate, is the active agent every single time. And this brings us to our final point. That the divine and human natures in Christ are not only distinct, but they are completely united in one person. An early church father, Anselm of Canterbury, in stating why two natures had to exist in one person for the work of saving the lost, said this. He said, it's necessary that the self-same person who is to make this satisfaction for humanity's sins to be perfect God and perfect man, since, listen, he cannot make it. He cannot make that satisfaction for your sins unless he be really God, and he ought not to make it unless he be really man. The cost of our sin was so unspeakably high, incredibly high, so high that no human being ever born could have ever paid it outside of an eternity in hell. The price was set by God's holiness, and that price was perfect morality, perfect law-keeping, and there was no wiggle room, and no one gets graded on a curve, and God never looks the other way. Stop fooling yourself. God never looks the other way. Don't ever look at God and say, well, you know my heart, or God, and God will look back at you and he'll say, you're right, I do know your heart, and it's wicked, and it's lost, and it's filled with darkness. God never looks the other way. What he does is so much better. What he does is so much better. See, not only is the price of my redemption because of my sin unspeakably high, my four parents, Adam and Eve, you had the same four parents. They had plunged us all into devastating spiritual depravity and ruin and it. It resulted in crippling spiritual poverty that I spoke about a minute ago. And and we're all, every living soul, red, yellow, black, and white, we're all crippled by that poverty. Every single one of us. Not one, not a single one of us could be found who has what it takes to pay that debt. So someone who was not of our race had to become one of our race. And he had to be adopted into our family. And you know why he did it? He did it so after paying your debt, he could adopt you into his family. And that's the good news of the gospel. Hebrews 2.17 summarizes all that like this. He says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. And that means like you and us. In every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, here's that word again, propitiation for the sins of people. He had to become like us so that he could suffer what we deserve to suffer and remove all of the cost, all of that debt, all of that burden of sin from us. Paul put it like this in our text we read earlier. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now let that sink in, would you, for just a second? Let that sink in. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let that sink in. Sovereign, creator, holy God, worshipped by angels, humbled himself. Humbled himself. And what do the little dirt balls like you and I like to do? We like to elevate ourselves. Treat me like God. And God says, "Mm mm-mm. Treat me like one of you. Everything that you deserve, he humbled himself. What does that mean? It means, as I said, that he was rich, but he became poor. It means that he was righteous, but he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It means that he was the way, the truth, the life, but he became the despised the rejected, the cast away. This is the mystery of mysteries, mystery of mysteries. But what a blessed truth. What an absolute, amazing, mind-blowing, you'll never get to the bottom of it, truth. God became poor. He became condemned under sin. He was despised. He was rejected. He was cast away. He was viciously murdered. And I ask you, looking at that scene, that that hill on Calvary with three crosses and the one in the middle, dead, and a Roman pagan centurion looks at him and says, something's different here. Something's different here. This was the Son of God. Oh yeah, he died like this guy and this guy, but uh, something's different. Something's different here. Truly, he was the Son of God. And I look at that scene and I, I ponder it and I consider it and I meditate upon it. And I have to say this, how could that happen? Is there no reward for this injustice? Is there no payoff for Christ who gave so much? And the answer is this, yes, 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 in every way, in every way. I love it in Psalm 2, 8, it prophetically has the Father speaking to the Son. And he says this, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Let me tell you something, there is a day coming when every single one of us that Christ has died to save will be gathered in. A representative from every single race, every single tribe, every single tongue every single culture on the planet and he shall rule with justice and righteousness forever i'm telling you the day is coming the day is coming and on that day listen i I, i'm just like you i'm so fallen and sinful sometimes i come here and i sit right there and i'm bored in his presence i'm i'm lackadaisical in worship i'm apathetic in my approach to his throne but a day is coming when no one 
will be able to resist offering him the praise that he is due. No one, no one will be too tired. No one will be too distracted. No one will be too apathetic to worship their king. Because of the humanity of his humility and his sacrifice, Paul declares it like this in our passage. He says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Lord. So what, for you and I this morning, is the proper response to this truth of Christ's divinity, this truth of Christ's humanity, just like that truth, our response is twofold. Pastor David is coming to take us through the Lord's Supper and, and to invite us to the Lord's table. And, and as you do that today, I want you to do this. I want you to, to think if you're here today and you've had the one of the days or one of the weeks where it seems that God is so distant and we all have those and you're convinced that God doesn't hear your cry. Will you just remember this morning that you have a God that has walked where you walk? Will you remember that he has felt what you felt? And, and as a human being, he did something that you can never do and the pressure is off you never have to do. He did something like this. He said to his disciples, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Amen. He did that for you as a man. As he, a man, he accomplished all that you were unable to accomplish. And most notably, he has, as a man, destroyed the power of sin and death. And so as you come here and you have bread broken that represents his body and, and, and a cup that represents his blood, remember, that was a real body. That was a real body and it was broken for you so that you could be adopted into his family. Because first he was adopted into yours. But that's only half. Never, ever, ever, ever forget that the man who accomplished all of this, the man that accomplished all of this, is most surely God to the fullest degree. He is God. If you have a picture in your home or you post them on the internet of this gorgeous, long, blonde, hair, blue-eyed European man in a robe, you might want to toss that out. And turn over to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, chapter 19, chapter 20. And, and John, in the best way he can, with limited human words, describes for you the Jesus that you will one day meet. And you can meet him as a friend or you can meet him as an enemy, but I guarantee you that is the Jesus you're going to meet. So if you want to know, if you want to know that without a shadow of a doubt that that Jesus is God, throw out the European guy and look at that picture. Amen? Never forget he's God. And as God, he deserves all of your worship, and all of your obedience. And the church said...